I have a question for you. I always start with questions. Here's my question. In the middle of a crisis, are you becoming more like your dog or more like your God? I don't know if Jordan's going to be able to get it up. But if you you Google um, people that look like their pets... you will discover that there's actually a photographer who does this. So he takes people that have these alarming similarities to their dogs and, uh, and puts them together to just demonstrate it. So just, float, just a couple more pages there. What was he thinking when he bought that dog? The next one. And those are just a couple. The actual photographer has got a lot of these things where he's taken it. And so I've got this question, are you becoming more like a dog? In other words, the people that are around about you, or are you becoming more like God? Because when we think about this concept of spiritual formation, I was struck that the path to stagnation, because spiritual formation is about a journey, right? The pathway to stagnation is paved with good intentions. But your progress in spiritual formation is directly related to the steps that you are taking. And in the midst of the current crisis, it feels like we've just had like crisis after crisis after crisis so far this year, but our current crisis, um, I've heard some really dumb stuff being said. Anybody else heard some really dumb stuff? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Seen some really dumb actions. Like, I don't, I don't know what we think toilet paper is going to do. What, if you wrap yourself all up with it? It's going to protect you from the virus or something. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me questions about my sister. Is your sister all right? In actual fact, my sister is probably in the safest place to be right now because in China they socially, they socially instructed that the best way for us to protect our community is for people not to get close to each other and thereby starve the virus of people to infect. And so she's been under isolation for about five weeks and so now China has taken the measures of actually stopping people getting into China in order to stop the virus coming back. I'm probably more at risk here in Australia than she is in China, ironically. Another really stupid thing I've heard is that people who go, oh, she'll be right, mate. Or what about this one? Have you heard anyone say, oh, well, we're not going to stop doing anything. God can protect me. That's a very presumptuous statement. And when we come to a crisis like, 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 like the coronavirus, the hard part about working out what to do is the fact that there's no immediate danger, right? So it's like, what, what do I need to do? Because the danger is imminent, but it's not immediately here. Now, in philosophy, I do a lot of philosophy, philosophical work. I do, after all, have a doctor of philosophy. There is a principle of thinking that says that in order to come up with the correct answer for whatever your problem is, then what you need to do is you need to take that scenario to its extreme. 
And whatever is the right thing to do in the extreme, that's the right thing to do in the non-extreme, right? So here's my question. Is it a lack of faith if you wake up at midnight and you look out your bedroom window and you notice that the house next door is on fire, right? Would it be a lack of faith if you were to ring the fire brigade? (laughs) Should you just stay in your bedroom and pray for the protection of God over your house? Or would it be a good idea to ring the fire brigade? Is there's wisdom? And in fact, I think there's a principle here, and the principle is this. Taking any sort of natural measure to protect yourself from something is not evidence of a lack of faith. Because faith has got absolutely nothing to do with what you do in the natural. What you do in the natural is like wisdom. Now, and I know this for sure because I did 6th of January last year, wake up at midnight, look out my window and notice that the house next door was on fire. And at that moment, I did four things. Put my pyjamas on. It was January. It was January. It was a very hot night. I rung the fire brigade. I prayed the most fervent prayer, calling on the mercy of God to save my house that I have ever prayed in my life. And then I ran around and shut all the windows in my house. Because as a scientist, I know that, you know, Oxygen fuels the fire, starve the fire of oxygen best by shutting windows, right? Four things that I did. In the natural, I did three things. In the spiritual, I did one. It is presumptuous of us to think that we will come under the protection of God if we do not do both what is necessary in the natural and with that what is necessary in the spiritual. You see, if you just do the natural things, then you're taking on an attitude of she'll be right and God will look after me and I don't actually even have to do anything about it. It's presumptuous that God's going to protect you from something if you haven't taken the necessary measures of calling on the mercy of God, of repentance, of forgiveness, etc., 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 But by the same token, it is equally presumptuous to think that we can fight a natural phenomenon purely by just burying our heads in the sand and just believing that God's going to look after us if we don't take the right measures. And so it's this notion of, yes, we need to take some measures in the natural, but by the same token, what do we need to do in the spiritual in order to progress us to a place of safety. And I have got three scriptures, one of which we've already heard several times today, and that's going to be the last one I get to. But I'm going to start with Psalm 23. Because Psalm 23, as you all know, you probably can all quote it with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, the next verse, verse 4, is the one I want us to pay attention to. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There are two critical points, two things that we must do in that verse. Number one is that you need to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You do not need to be stopping there, right? We need to keep walking. We need to keep on a spiritual pathway towards what God is calling us to be and who is God is calling us, what we're being called to do. Number one and number two in that verse is, I will fear no evil. Because as it says in Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Those three things, power, love, and a sound mind, are critical in a crisis because it's those things that make us become like God and not like our dogs. Because it's when we don't fear that love, power, and a sound mind that we take sensible action and not panic buying of toilet paper. And that's for the collective good. Like, like all those people who've got thousands of rolls of toilet paper haven't thought about the fact that now there is no toilet paper. People who live from paycheck to paycheck are now surviving without toilet paper. Well, you have several hundred in your house. How is that showing kindness to your community? It's self-serving. That's the first one. God's called us to do those two things, to walk and to fear not. And then really interestingly, if you go to the end of Psalm 23, there's a third instruction. So if we just walk the whole way, because I think it's worth reading the whole, the whole um, psalm. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, the third thing, we're asked to dwell. We're asked to walk. We're asked not to fear, but we're asked to dwell. And it's the dwelling that I think is critical to the capacity not to fear. Because it's where you dwell that drives your thinking. You dwell in the presence of God. There is no space for fear. If you want to know... What's going to happen if you get isolated in your own house and we can't gather together? Then I would like to use Alicia as a case example because Alicia's been under isolation for the last four weeks, right? Because all Alicia does right now is sit on a bed in her bedroom and uh, all day, every day, and has for four weeks since we went to Ren Collective together. I don't know if you've noticed, but Alicia's had a prophetic word both Sundays, for the last two Sundays. What does dwelling in the presence of God do? Dwelling in the presence of God brings the wisdom of God into your life. For a time such as this, not that I'm saying that God made a break a leg, but God certainly knows how to use it. 
Now, another scenario that I think is important, and, and, and it's, as it so happens, it's what I was reading in the scripture this week, was in Exodus. Now, in Exodus chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, around that space, we have the story of the 10 plagues, right? I'm, I haven't counted how many disasters we've gone through so far in Australia this year, um, but I think, you know, we've had a few plagues of, you know, fire, flood. Now we've got $8 cauliflowers. I consider that to be a plague, etc. There's been a few plagues. Um, but in those plagues, and in fact, it's interesting that for the first nine of them, that whether you were an Egyptian or an Israelite, you actually suffered the consequences of those plagues. It was not until the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, that Moses prophesied that there would be a distinction made between the Egyptians and the Israelites. You'll find that in um, Exodus chapter 12. I think it is. It's somewhere in my notes. I don't know. But anyway, in Exodus, you know, 11 or 12, we have this with Moses prophesies to the Pharaoh that there will be a distinction made. And that distinction is made on the basis of the Passover. Here's the interesting thing. The distinction was not made on the basis of whether you were an Israelite or an Egyptian. It was made on the basis of the Passover. So you see what happened is that if an Israelite did not undertake the work of the Passover sacrifice, they were not covered by the Passover Are you getting the significance here? It is the work of the Passover, the actions of that work that protected the Israelites in that place. And that brings me, of course, to Psalm 91. I was reflecting on this yesterday as I was finalising what I was going to preach today. Um, And I remembered that the last time that I spoke about Psalm 91 was on September the 11th, 2001, at which point my audience was 30 11-year-olds in a year six classroom. We're in a similar situation. And as you know, Psalm 91, if we start in verse 1, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Skipping over a few verses, not that they're not all important and I would encourage you to go home and read the whole psalm and do it every day. In verses 7 and 8 it says this, And a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked interestingly as we continue on in Psalm 91 there are in fact two conditions that God places on 
his safe refuge that is promised in the beginning of the psalm. So through the beginning of Psalm 91, God promises safe rest for refuge. And the second half of Psalm 91 tells us what the conditions are that lead to that. So it comes with conditions. Effectively, there's always a stepping towards, a stepping into. And this is part of our spiritual formation generally, but I think we've got a unique opportunity to think about how this works practically at this point in time. And I think it's clear that in this process of Psalm 91 is that we're not talking here about a natural solution to the problem, but it's a supernatural solution to this problem that God's talking about here and that it's a product of faith and it's a product of our spiritual formation. So I have got a couple of points to make about our spiritual formation. The first one is this, is that our spiritual formation begins and ends with our identity. So spiritual formation is tied up in your identity, just as with the Israelites and the Passover. You needed to be an Israelite, have that identity to gain access to the Passover. Interestingly, the identity didn't give you, you also then had to do something. In Psalm 23, we see that um, when in the very first verse, as you know, where you say, the Lord is my shepherd. What you're saying when you say the Lord is my shepherd is that you're taking on an identity that I am a follower of my shepherd. You're taking on an identity. Formation is directly related to your identity. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, we have a very clear demonstration of what our identity is. And our identity in Christ is as children of God, as sons of God. And if there's anything I know about children and sons is that they grow up to be like their parents. As a teacher, I always loved the first teacher interviews because it explained a lot about the behaviours of the children in my class. It's like, now I understand why they're like that. And we have an inheritance. That is our identity. That is the basis of our spiritual formation as sons and daughters of God. Interestingly, though, um, we don't always walk in that inheritance We often um, live under the peril of being the older son in relationship to the story of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, verse 31, we actually hear the father's solution where he said to him, well, you were here the whole time. The entire inheritance was here. You could have at any time, but you have withdrawn from your inheritance. See, our spiritual formation isn't just about what is our identity, but How have we walked into that identity? Because while our identity, this is point number two, comes by faith, our formation comes by works. Well, our identity comes by faith. You know, we are justified, we are sanctified, and we are glorified. Those three things. They're not for some future event. We're actually that now. That is our identity now. Whether we walk it out or not, depends on our spiritual formation. A really nice way to explain this is, um, this morning when I woke up, I did not have to wonder or worry about whether I was a human or whether I was a female, right? My identity as a, you know, 
female human person is assured. It's something that's there. However, I did not look this good when I first woke up. And I certainly can tell you my hair did not look like this. I know it may look like all I do is lie on it and then wake up and whatever happens, that's what happens. Actually, no. There's a lot of effort and work and product that goes into this hair <laughs> to make me an a suitably presented female person to come to church and preach a word, right? I could turn up here as I woke up. But I don't know that I would get invited back to preach very often if I did that on a regular basis, right? And as I'm looking around here, I can see that there's been less or more effort put in by... Ver no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I mean, right? That your identity as a person and your identity in relationship to how you present yourself in our community is assured because it's part of what God has made you to be. But that does not mean that you can't do some work on it, right? I used to have a friend who used to say, why is it that all the you know, stylish men are married? <laughs> why are all the stylish men married? And I looked at her and I said, that's because they have a wife. She's the one that's doing the work of the style. You're not, so I said to her, you're not looking for a stylish man. You're looking for a blank canvas that it's going to work well. <laughs> I don't think she believed me. But it, it's true. You know, it, it's not one or the other. Our faith and works work together. We know that in Ephesians chapter 2. I know, I must admit, Sean, you are looking very stylish nowadays. Sue, is Sue responsible? Faith, the identity comes from, from in our faith. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it says, For we have been, by grace are we saved, through faith, that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. In um, Galatians 3.26, it says that we are the sons of God through faith. Our faith is incredibly critical at this, at this point. But by the same token, in James chapter 1, we get this, the, if you look from 22 to 24, it says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. There has to be some work. You see, my identity is that I am justified, sanctified and glorified in Christ. That is my identity. But I can tell you in the mornings when I wake up, I need to pray a prayer that says, God, everything's cool right now, but I'm about to get up, so I'm going to need some help. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the process of working towards that. And I must say some days are better than others. But my third point is this, is that your faith with formation. So if you think about the faith with works, not faith or works, faith with works, takes you to a higher place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, I think this one's worth, I mean, I've thrown out a bunch of scriptures, um, but this is one that's worth actually opening up and reading. Verses 16 to 18, it says this, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, that's the faith part, 
the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's the freedom that comes to bring us to the point of formation. But we all, with unveiled face, in faith, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, that's the formation part, into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Our formation takes us to a higher place. And so just in concluding, going back to Psalm 91, in verse 7 and 8, I just... I think this is, you know, this, this, and I read it before, verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. And the two conditions, you will find the first one of them in verse 9. It says in verse 9, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. There is something about dwelling with God that is powerful and is a necessary precondition to being coming under his safe refuge. You become like who you dwell with. So I think we have two options. We, we can let nature take its course and see what happens with this virus or we can choose actively to press into God. Think of it a bit like a fire. If the house next door was on fire, would you pray to God? Okay. Well, just think of it like that. There is a virus running around rampant. We don't know where it is. We don't know who's got it, who hasn't got it. It is mysteriously around about me. What or not? Who knows? What can I do? I can pray. I can stay in the presence of God. I can dwell with him. I can pray. And know that in that prayer, in that dwelling place with God, that's where the protection is. See, the protection comes from the glory of God around about your life. That's where it comes from. Things cannot penetrate. Things from the enemy cannot penetrate where the presence of God is. That is a core principle here. So while we can work in the natural, we need to remember that we also need to work in the spiritual and make sure that we are actively pursuing the presence of God around about our lives because it's in that presence that the things of the enemy cannot harm us. And then the second condition, because I'm running out of time, remembering that we should keep all meetings down to under two hours, <laughs> is in verse 14. And it says there, because he has set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. The most important thing, once you have the presence of God around your life, recognising you then become like God, then what is God? God is love. And I'm going to tell you a little something that's really fascinating about this particular scripture. Because, you know, how you've, who's ever heard of like there's four types of love? You know, it's in the Bible and the Greek, there's eros and da-da-da-da-da-da. That's actually only relevant to the New Testament, which was written in Greek. In the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, right? 
there are in fact only two words for love. Those two words you can loosely translate like this. The God kind of love, which is entirely unconditional and self-sacrificing. In fact, if you want to know what it's like, read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 8, right? That tells you what that kind of love is like. And then the second type of love is, uh, the easiest translation would be a man kind of love, a man uh, like a human kind of love, right? And the human kind of love is, that word in the Hebrew is translated in two ways in the Old Testament. It's either translated as love or it's translated as lust. So it's that human, self-serving, you know, mutual, you know, satisfying, potentially mutually benefiting, but exclusive version of love. And the entire Old Testament is very careful through the entire lot. And I know this because I have written every single scripture in the entire Bible that has the word love in it out on cards and analysed them, right? So it's not like I'm... I know this for certain. The Bible is very... the, The translators are very careful that if it's God that's doing the loving in the Old Testament, they use the God word. And if it's mankind doing the loving, they use the man word, the human word, right? Except for one place. There is one scripture in the entire Old Testament where the meaning is that love, that is the God kind of love, is applied to a human. And that one place is this verse. So it says here, Because he has set his love upon me. In other words, because he has taken on the God type of love, therefore I will deliver him. Don't you think it's interesting that this is in the entire Old Testament, all 44 books, this is the one time that the God kind of love is attached to a human. And it's done so as the condition for deliverance. We apply that to our response to this crisis, the next crisis, whatever it is that might happen. What is a godly response in a crisis? How can I become more like God and less like my dog? Or the person next door who's panicking and buying three or four or ten packets of toilet paper. Though I notice now at my local supermarket they're rationing flour, rice, pasta, hand sanitizer, everything I needed to go and get this week because I've run out pretty much. And on and on it goes. And I think just as a final encouragement, I think we need to remember that any response that stems from any point of fear is not a God response. And I read it before, but in 2 Timothy 1.17, the word of God tells us that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I believe that right now we have a unique opportunity to practice the presence of God in response to this crisis. And in doing so, finding ways to demonstrate God's love in a world that needs it so desperately.
And I would encourage us that we need to be number one, prayerful and thankful. Let's not presume our protection, but let's stand in prayerfulness, thankfulness to God that he is our safe refuge. And number two, we need to be confident and faith-filled. We know that God is our refuge. That is our identity. We don't need to fear. And number three, that we remember the characteristics of love as is in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8. I'd encourage you to go and read it. I think the most common time I hear people uh, use the scriptures at a wedding, it's like the little wedding. It's like actually the Bible says if you do it for your loved ones, you know, that's normal. Even though uh, the, the wicked know to be nice to their wife. You know, but the Bible asks us, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. You see, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 8, love is patient, love is kind, love is not self-seeking, etc., etc. That's actually our instructions for how we're supposed to treat the world, not our spouse. (laughs) Well, we should also treat our spouse that way. (laughs) Not just our spouse. It's how we should treat the world. We have a unique opportunity to walk with kindness and compassion in our world. 